right, now you know. <laughs> Let's clap on three. One, two, three. That's close. Now That's close know. enough. Now you know where we started. <laughs> that breaks down the 1987 action sci-fi classic Predator one minute at a time. I'm John, and joining us today is a very special guest, my brother. Hello, I'm Zach. Wait, what a sec- wait a second. My brother, Zach? I have another brother? My That's own right. brother. <laughs> my own brother. Uh Co-host Aaron is unavailable again for this week's minute, unfortunately, um, but I was able to wrangle our other Zabriskie brother, the third Zabriskie brother, um, to record with us today, for which I am very thankful. All right, today we are talking about minute 10 of Predator. Minute 10 opens with Dylan looking at a lighter, and it ends with Dylan looking down into the jungle from the chopper. Now, Zach, this being your first time joining Predator Minute, I thought I'd open the floor up to you a little bit and just I'll ask some more questions throughout the podcast, but I'll just start off with just your first memories of Predator or any kind of history you have with this movie. So my main memories of Predator, because so I was born in 91, so this movie was a little bit before my time, but they must have still been doing a good job marketing it because I definitely remember Predator like the whole uh, the whole look, the whole aesthetic. I remember I had Predator like action figures and toys growing up, and I always thought he was yeah. super cool. Um, and it kind of, like, I always made parallels where because I played a lot of StarCraft, and so I always made parallels with, like, the Protoss with Predator. So it kind of fit that whole thing for me when I was young, where that was, like, the cool sci-fi alien. Like, this was the cool one with the invisibility and the shields. And so, so for me, I think it was probably more a product of marketing rather than actually, you know, loving the movie. But in my adult life, of course, I, I love the movie. But back then, I think it was more just the action figures and things that really sold me. Okay, cool, cool. And um, when is the last time you watched Predator? Last time I watched Predator was two days ago in preparation for this. The last right. time I had seen it before that was probably not for another 10 years prior. It's a movie that I enjoyed, but I haven't, you know, I wasn't familiar with, I would say, until pretty recently. Like, I, I, I knew the beats of the movie pretty well, and I kind of remember the story, but um, it was definitely a good refresher to watch it and then also do some additional research into it just the other day. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the hopping on the Predator Minute and doing your due diligence watching the movie, coming up with some good topics to talk about with this Minute minute 10. Uh, so you being the guest, I like to give it to the guest first um, in terms of what you want to talk about. So Zach, what do you want to talk about with this Minute first? Yeah, I was just thinking... Uh, with this whole scene that we get with all the banter and stuff and, you know, everybody's kind of pre-mission rituals, 
I was wondering if what the Predator kind of pre-mission rituals look like and if they had their own little banter going on or if they had their own stuff to get themselves pumped up. That's one that we get to see. So, you know, we don't really get to see any of it. But that was what I was thinking was like, we get this great introduction to the characters here. But, you know, I, I want to see what what our boy, the Predator, was up to in his little pre-mission flight. Right. It's uh, just, a, just a big what if. But that was, you know, makes you wonder, makes you think. Right. Like maybe they're putting on their own, like, not eye black, but maybe they're putting on their own. I don't know. They're, they seem to be covered in like this kind of like just general moisture. Maybe they're like kind of putting some kind of like Vaseline on the skin or something like that or I don't know. They're 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 tightening up their dreads, or they're sharpening their blades, or any manner of thing. Maybe they're playing pranks on each other. They're spitting like <laughs> green spit on each other's boots, or whatever. Like, come on, Ted, knock it off. Yeah, or like yeah. alien blood, right? Because they exist in the same universe, right? They is do. That, is that canon yet? Is that a thing? <laughs> Wait, is it can- like today? Is it canon or in the movie? In the movie, as that. Watching- yeah, has that have they encountered each other yet as of this movie? <laughs> no, no, this this movie is 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 purely its own entity. It's not until Predator 2 uh, movie comes along where you see the inside of the Yalcha ship and you see the alien skull does it become canonized there because 20th 20th Century Fox uh, produced both franchises. I see. Okay, so talking about our own people and what they're doing, so I like the point about the the predators. That's just a funny visual. Yeah, like, I don't know. And like everyone, in their drop pod, and everyone here's got their own little nervous ticks that they do. So you wonder if mm-hmm. the predators have their own little nervous ticks. They they got some personality. <laughs> right, I don't like know. Maybe the predators shaving with the yeah. Predators. Maybe they're Scott usually just... kind of bearded or something. Maybe that's the one that shaves all the time. <laughs> this is getting better all the time. Yeah, they could have little little parallels. So to dive into what we do see in terms of our human squad prepping, we see Dylan showing his lighter off from uh, North of Way is his reference. He says, I was in 72, North of Way. Me and Dutch both got one. He's referencing this lighter in front of him, and you don't really see too good of a view of it while he's showing it. It's very reflective, and it's just coated in the same red light in the chopper, so there's not a lot to see. It almost looks like it has a little banner, a little tiny message as he's as it's showing his viewpoint of the lighter. Um, but that got, that started me thinking, okay, like he has a lighter, then maybe that's like significant to something. Maybe that means something when soldiers have these Zippo lighters. And my questions led me to the internet naturally, where I was asking Yahoo answers, does the military give soldiers Zippo lighters? And a lot of the people who responded to that just said, no, the soldiers would have to buy them with post exchange. But still, these lighters end up with like these cool messages and cool imagery like maps and soldiers uh, sometimes like really crudely drawn pinup girls um, which I thought was interesting but if you um, google um, Vietnam Zippos for uh, more specifically you'll see all manner of um, these Zippos with these engravings of different areas where battles took place um, you'll sometimes see like little messages, little uh, aphorisms. Uh, for example, there was one from a Zippo, which is marked with the name G.R. Oliver. And the <laughs> little adage they have is a sucking chest wound is nature's way of telling you that you've been ambushed, which I thought was uh, a, a funny little thing you'd like be keeping in mind, you know, always, always having that in the back of your head as a soldier, especially where he's talking about with the Battle of Way, this Vietnam battle, um, all 
always having to be prepared for ambushes and traps. So that, that's the first part I read about Zippo lighters. Did you have anything input-wise on Zippos that you want to talk about? Um, I was thinking about how, I guess, like, Arnold, right? He's really well-known for smoking the cigars. So for him, yeah. it, it makes some sense. And I was listening to an interview with Carl Weathers. Can I just call him Carl? I don't know. It, feel, it sounds weird to just say Carl, but I was listening <laughs> to an interview with Carl Weathers, and he was saying that he did not smoke. He led a pretty clean lifestyle with all that um, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, you know smoking, drinking. And then he said that Arnold was always smoking cigars <clears throat> and blowing smoke in his face. And then he actually got him hooked on cigars. And so yeah. I was, because I was thinking of what use would he have for a lighter? Because um, I, don't, I don't think you see him smoking at all in the movie. But then that was just, it led to a funny little anecdote with him. Uh, but what I thought was kind of interesting was, was I think the next thing from looking at your notes, the next stuff that you're going to talk about, I thought was pretty interesting. So I'm going yeah. to let you get into that. Cause I hadn't thought about this angle of carrying suppose around. I had not either until I was just reading through the Wikipedia article for Zippos, I believe. I think it might have been military Zippos or Vietnam Zippos that I was searching through. And there's this little section that mentions this term uh, Zippo Squad. And it was just, just really brought to light like, oh, okay, this could be another reason why people have uh, the Zippos. Um, so I'm just going to read off an excerpt from the Wikipedia. It says, Morally Safer in his August 5th, 1965 CBS News report, of the Comne Affair and Private First Class Reginald Malik Edwards, the Rifleman 9th Regiment, U.S. Marine Corps, Da Nang, June 1965 to March 1966, whose profile comprises Chapter 1 of Wallace Terry's book Bloods, an Oral History of the Vietnam War by Black Veterans, described the use of Zippo lighters and search-and-destroy missions during the Vietnam War. Edwards stated, when you say level a village, you don't use torches. It's not like the 1800s. You used a Zippo. Now you would use a Bic. That's just the way we did it. You went in there with your Zippos. Everybody. That's why people bought Zippos. Everybody had a Zippo. It was for burning shit down. And they give a couple references to um, the sources they're talking about, namely the book uh, Bloods, an oral history of the Vietnam War by black veterans. Just a little last section. is It says Zippo Squad became a phrase of American military jargon for being assigned to burn a village. The M-132 armored flamethrower was referred to as a Zippo. And to me, that's just like bone chilling to read. It's it's all on the same lines of what Aaron and I were talking about in terms of the CIA and all sorts of covert operations they put on where they even have had these ideas of like attacking your own people and calling that in as a false flag and blaming it on a different country. Um, so seeing something like that is just, wow, that's terrifying that it was just canon for the, for the people fighting in Vietnam to raise these villages. Um, and one of the tools they used was the Zippo. So I can't quite look at it the same anymore when I see these Zippos online or when I see the Zippo in this movie. And I immediately think, oh my God, Carl Weathers, were you one of these guys who burned down villages? Yikes. Um, but that's well, not Carl own. Weathers, but one of the guys, um, Poncho, I think, did serve in Vietnam. Yeah, Poncho served Vietnam. I think he saw combat, and then um, Jesse Ventura was underwater demolition expert. So he was in Vietnam, but he didn't see combat. Uh, he worked with a team of underwater soldiers to clear mines and clear explosives out of the way for um, their the American ships to cross certain waters. So yeah, that's that's wild to think about that you have something pretty innocuous. I remember I used to think Zippos were really cool when I was younger. I never smoked yeah. or anything, but 
I remember you had a Zippo at one point and I, I always, it, it was the cool thing, right? Cause you could flip it open and then, you know, just like spark it, flip it back. In fact, mm-hmm. I think they, one of the, maybe when I was a more impressionable youth, I remember I think it was X-Men 2, that movie, there was a guy who could manipulate fire and that was like his big thing is he would carry around a Zippo. And I remember that saw a little surge in popularity where, uh, again, me being a, an impressionable youth at the time where you just, you see something cool and you're like, wow, that's cool. And that was one of the things where it's like, wow, Zippos are cool because you see him like flipping the Zippo and, and lighting stuff on fire. You're like, oh, neat. And then turns out here they actually did that, which is crazy to think about with something that seemingly innocuous. Right. And then I'm like thinking at 10 steps a little bit too far where I'm thinking, oh, like him being him showing off the Zippo maybe is part of like the disdain that um, Jesse Ventura is showing towards him uh, in the very next cut where Jesse Ventura after Carl Weathers tells everybody where the lighter came from, obviously, you know, trying to bring everybody in his good graces like hey i'm one of you guys i'm tough you know i've seen i've seen combat here's like my trophy hey oh here's my trophy from my battle uh with dutch so dutch would have one too jesse ventura spits on his shoe spits a big old blurt of tobacco on dylan's shoe and then blaine grins at him um dylan you know beckons over blaine with his finger blaine leans in and dylan says that's a real nasty habit you got there and then i have something to say a little bit after that but i think you had some spit talk yeah i I had some stuff to talk about with this one Uh, so for one for starters you'll hear me wrestling because this is the 15th anniversary dvd box set of predator this is what we've been using for dvd commentary and also for viewing Mm -hmm. and they put a bunch of quotes on the box so they have some uh, some of the more chilling quotes from the movie, right? Some of the more poignant quotes they have. Makes Cambodia look like Kansas. They have that one, which um, mm-hmm. was, was spoken by Blaine. And then we have Stick Around from Arnold, of course. And then we have mm-hmm. If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It. We have Payback Time. Yeah. Ain't Got Time to Bleed. And then your one ugly mother, beep. And then... Uh, to really cap things off and show you the just the intensity this film brings, we have that's a real nasty habit you got there. Also <laughs> on the box, so that's those those are the quotes on the box. That one made me laugh when I was when I was looking at this thing and I was like, they they put that on there. I mean, I guess there's not a lot of dialogue to choose from. Uh-uh. It was probably between that and Arnold's primal yell at the end, but that one probably didn't transcribe as well. So I just I thought that was funny that that's uh. Because all the other ones like have exclamation points and are kind of, uh, you know, they're they're kind of pointed points in the movie. Whereas this one is just a real nasty habit you got there. It's, it seems a little out of place compared to the rest of them. So, mm-hmm. I, but it's uh, likely the first thing you're going to see because it's at the top of the back of the box. So there you go. Oh, there you go. Just a little, uh, little DVD box set lore for you. Yeah, a uh, funny story behind that DVD um i've had that for the last 15 years because um when it came out um the family came and visited me in bellingham when i was going to western washington university um during my birthday and one of my birthday presents was a stack of dvds and that was in the stack and one of my old facebook pictures still shows me holding the stack of dvds and the only one you can actually see because it's not like in reflective plastic coating is the predator collector's edition while the other dvds i can't even tell what they are but you and i were talking earlier and we think maybe one was rollerball which would be pretty funny because rollerball was one of the last films directed by john mctiernan and kind of the opposite end of the scale in terms of quality uh, according to critics and 
a lot of other people. Yeah, I think the important movie in that batch stands out. I think that's <laughs> that's the one preserved by time here. Yeah. Oh, and you mentioned you mentioned lines. A uh, real quick question: Do you have a favorite line from the movie, or a favorite scene, or both? Uh, so I was thinking more in terms of favorite scene. The line is hard to pick out because there's so many good little one-liners, and you can like ones for different reasons. You can like the funnier ones or the tense ones. Uh, favorite scene is definitely where Mac goes off to confront the predator and Dylan goes off to back up Mac. Uh, but Mac kind of gets away from him in the jungle. Dylan has to catch up and mm-hmm. you hear, uh, you hear Mac's voice as Dylan's looking for him and you hear the over here and turn around, which is what the predator was listening in on earlier in the movie. And so it does this great fake out where, where it's like oh man is this the predator baiting him in or is this actually mac and it's it's a pretty unique one right because in a lot of like horror movies the way you do that is i don't know maybe the bushes are rustling and then and then it zooms in and you know a cat jumps out and you're like oh it wasn't the predator it was a cat but Mm -hmm. in this movie they can actually use that really cool kind of like lead in there where they're actually using somebody's voice as the bait which is pretty uncommon because it's this established thing where the predator emulates people's voices and it's a great fake out, whereas any other movie would have to rely on some kind of movement, some kind of, you know, kind of uh, like ambiguous noise or something. But this mm-hmm. one I, I thought was that one really kind of captured me where where I actually didn't know what was going to happen, because rather than just hearing rustling or, or something, you're you know hearing Mac's voice and you're like, I don't actually know if this is Mac. So that that one was one of the better fake outs in terms of kind of potential jump scares or something in a movie like that that one really stuck for me yeah no that's a really good choice there and that scene definitely stands out to me as one of the uh stronger horror scenes in this movie where um a lot of times you know if it's the predator just like taking someone out right away without any build-up or the predator just in general chasing arnold who you know is going to live by the end um there's right that scene you're talking about which is this long drawn out you know hunter versus the prey um and john mctiernan does great with that and um and there's a video online by a guy whose channel's name is collative learning he does a great breakdown of that scene he'd be an awesome guest to consult for one of the minutes in that scene um but you would definitely be too because hey if that's your favorite scene I like let's, that hear what's, let's hear what's going on as you're watching it <laughs> 10 times in a row on a loop um just be like oh am i more scared am i less scared am i more just scared for the character that's kind of how i end up going through these minutes it's i just feel even like more sorry like oh i miss that character even more after seeing this minute or this movie so many times so for the nasty habit uh, little dialogue here, mm-hmm. a couple other things stood out to me. Sure. One is that Arnold doesn't interfere or anything in this. Clearly, you know, uh, Arnold has taken orders from Dylan and Arnold has established that Dylan is, you know, an old friend of his, but he doesn't, doesn't say anything. He doesn't step in or anything, which it's, I thought that was cool that he's not, he's not trying to keep his guys in line or whatever. Like here's uh, Blaine, you know, openly disrespecting really and taunting Dylan and, and, Arnold just play, you know, he just rolls with it, which I thought it was kind of a neat. I don't, I don't know if it was just because they didn't bother writing any dialogue in there or what, but I take it as a neat little interaction where he's not, you know, he's not keeping his guys on a short leash or anything. Yeah, totally. Um, in those chopper scenes, uh, I would argue, I would not argue. Um, it seems to me that Arnold has the least lines in that chopper scene compared to Blaine and Poncho, Hawkins, Dylan. Um, 
Billy says nothing. Max says nothing. So it's really feast or famine for a lot of the um, characters here. And yeah, I like your point about him just letting his crew prep themselves and letting them interact like they've probably done so many missions prior um, to this. And just he knows his team's going to be ready, ready and the banter and the spitting and the shaving all, all goes along with uh, the prep and a little edit kind of note in there is that the music the background music actually gets a little quieter when they lean in uh, mm. where where dylan kind of does a little finger wag kind of thing to you know kind of like come here because he's gonna say something uh to blaine and the yeah and the background noise the helicopter noise and the music gets gets a few just a few ticks quieter when they lean in like that and mm. then it goes back to normal when they lean out so something that you uh don't necessarily notice on the first or the fifth viewing <laughs> but once you get up into the 10th and 15th viewing of that scene you start to notice that kind of thing oh certainly and that'll be the intro audio for this minute for sure is you're gonna have a good 15 seconds or so where you're waiting you're like okay hear the song oh the song quieted and then he gives them the line of that's a real nasty habit you got there um and that's essentially the last thing that's said in this minute because after that it's a lot of moving and shaking to prep for the repel out of the helicopter but uh, my last note about the spit take, and wow, like I didn't, like we're saying a lot about this guy just spit on someone's shoe. Pretty cool. It is kind um, of the, it, it's the most, uh, I don't know, kind of, it's the centerpiece of this scene, I would say, of this minute anyways. It's it's definitely the defining action for, for this whole minute. It's the most we have in terms of character interactions, the most dialogue we have. So it mm-hmm. is it is the centerpiece of, of this minute here. Oh, totally. Um but just the fact that Jesse comes from a wrestling background, and up until this point, Carl Weathers was most known for playing Apollo Creed in the Rocky movies. I couldn't help but think of, oh, is this like if someone's watching this this for the first time, are they going to be expecting like this crossover kind of fight, not on the chopper, but maybe on the mission later on, where this this character known for playing boxing characters taking is taking on a guy playing a wrestling character in the body. Uh, later on in some kind of boxing wrestling crossover kind of like Rocky 3 had done and Carl Weathers was in Rocky 3 um, where Mr. T took on Rocky in this kind of publicity fight but thankfully in Predator they don't go that route and like no point in the movie and I'm thankful for this at no point in the movie does a squad really fight amongst each other they like blows or like you know threaten each other with a knife or a gun The, the closest thing is like um, Mac being in Carl Weathers' face later on and saying, you're ghosting us. Like, you give our position away and we'll bleed you. Um, but that's more just threatening. It's not like anybody's having to fight to prove a point or to, like to become better friends or to, like understand the mission better or become like a single unit. Yeah, I love that there's no petty drama in this. Everything is a very unified goal mm-hmm. the entire time. And I'm glad they don't break away from that. And it's not... I. I always feel it's a little kind of insulting when they pad out a movie with extra drama um, or with kind of that infighting. So I like that even though they clearly don't like Dylan in this movie, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're there to do a mission. And the only time he really calls him out is when he's kind of screwing up their mission. Otherwise, right. they don't really give him much of a hard time. Um, so I, I really like that they keep that kind of unified front and don't squabble with each other. Because it makes the movie better paced, it it just makes it more interesting to me, and it means there's no burn time on on these kind of little falling outs. And you know when it in movies too, when they 
kind of do that infighting with each other, you know they're going to resolve it. So you know it's just padding time. Like you know yeah. that whatever they do, it's it, maybe it's for character development. But the point is like you know they're they're going to end up okay. It's it's like if people started fighting in this movie, you you know they're going to end up uh you know kind of like making up by the end of it so i'm glad they just don't even bother with that and they're just like you know what we you know we have our problem our our, you know our predator problem is big enough let's not create like extra problems for ourselves yeah they they handle i would say in a very professional manner even when right arnold is learning in the gorilla camp later on that they're set up and carl weathers lied to have them come destroy the gorilla village you know it's it's He's right in his face in that scene. Arnold's right in Carl Weathers' face and angry, but he lets him go and just, you know, has this quiet resignation. Like, we're okay, we, we, we did the job as mad as I am that we did. We did your dirty work, um, and now we're going to march out of here, just soldier-style, professional-style. Uh, up to that point, it's right. It's something like, you know, I... Quite professional. Something I liked personality-wise with their real-life personalities. I was watching some YouTube videos and some interviews and stuff of Carl Weathers and also Jesse Ventura. Mm -hmm. And Jesse is a very confrontational dude. And he's very cocky and he's very loud and gets in people's face. And Carl Weathers is a very kind of whimsical, always smiling kind of guy. So it's it totally matches. I don't know how much of this was written towards them versus how much was just them kind of, you know, just doing what comes naturally. But... Mm -hmm the sort of the sort of smiling and kind of the real nasty habit you got there it's it like if you watch some interviews with each of these guys it totally makes sense um because like so quick anecdote on that with the making of everyone's talking about how harsh the jungle was how hard they had to work out all the time and you know keep fit keep big and, and you know getting sick and and how rough the terrain was and there was some interview with carl weathers like pretty recently about predator and he just like brushes it off he just says oh you know you're in your 30s you know you just you work hard you get up the next day that's no problem for a young man like and it was just hilarious because then you listen to him and everyone else on the commentary and they're like oh yeah it was harsh it was difficult it was you know incredibly taxing and then you know you hear him later just totally brush it off just kind of smiling and kind of sing song voice so it it to me watching that i was like wow that really is who these guys are that's that totally matches so it's like a real Tom Howell moment. No, I don't know if you remember Tom Howell from Boy Scouts, but he was uh, an adult leader who was very like whimsical and was very like just look on the brighter side and just oh like it's not that bad. I'm like oh we had the best time in the jungle, ran to some friends, or, <laughs> yeah, like, totally got to a chopper. It was great. That's that's how that's how Carl sounds when he's talking about it. Yeah, I even the comparison I give right here in my own notes is that him beckoning Blaine over to hear him talk one-to-one. It's a very student-teacher um, kind of interaction or teacher-student interaction where, you know, you're going to come in close, you're going to hear my direct message, but it's not even like, it's not even that confrontational from Carl. It's very like, yeah, that's that's not a good choice right there. Just thought you'd let, you know, you thought you'd like to know. And Jesse just grins even bigger, like, yep, <laughs> I know. But um gosh anything else about up to the spit i don't think i have anything else up to the spit but um so okay so i have i've all something so right at the beginning um arnold hands some papers back to the the Mm co-pilot and so i have two thoughts on that one is i mean why not hang on to the papers like i know carl has the map or i guess dylan has the map so i mean they're probably doing okay but 
Like, it looks like he's going over some briefing material or something. Like, it may as well hold on to that is, is one thought I had. And yeah. then the other the other thing I had was, so I I, <laughs> I went very analytical on the, on the gauges on the instrument panel in the helicopter, which you only get a couple really brief shots of. You get one in a previous minute where it you see, um, like, the pilot's hand kind of turning some knobs, then it shows the little screen of the helicopter right that there it's like mm-hmm. the support uh, helicopter and you see the screen of the helicopter that the crew are in here and mm-hmm. then you see it once you see the instrument panel once more at the beginning of this minute when arnold hands the papers back i did a lot of googling and i was trying to line up the gauges with what they are in real life because you know that this helicopter is just sitting somewhere like sitting on the ground so you know it's not moving um so right. i was like oh it'd be funny if they i guess it'd be funny if a you could see that you know, they weren't actually doing anything because that's always kind of humorous. And then, or B, if they actually did put the effort to actually move the gauges, that would be pretty cool. So I was looking at, I found like a PDF of the UH-1 manual and I was looking at some, uh, just like some kind of Google images, right. Of like, of, you know, real life shots of the cockpit. I was looking at there's been some really detailed flight simulator recreations. So I was like, so people were posting videos of those I was finding. And of course. so I'll just kind of give you the breakdown of what I was able to read from the helicopter gauges. And right. this is all kind of, it's kind of speculation because it's as best as I could line it up because you can never actually read what the gauges say. Mm-hmm. But here's what we got. Okay, so there's one, this one I'm actually for sure on um, because this is like the only one you can actually read is the IFF mode four is enabled. And IFF is the uh, the friend or foe indicator so that people can know, you know, which who's a friendly, who's not. Sure. And mode four is some special mode where it's like requires additional encryption. And the difference was that with older modes, if somebody sent you a request, you would always send back something and then they could, you know, uh, find your location based on that, even if it was an enemy. Whereas right. with this one, you don't even respond if you don't, if the signal doesn't have the right password. Um, so we know that IFF mode four is enabled. So there you go. Thanks. Lots of Googling and freeze framing. And then, okay, here's what else we have. We have the main generator gauge where it shows the load of the main generator, which is at zero. And then there's the standby generator, which actually looks like it's on, which is hard to tell, but I, it looks like it's on. We have the, uh, the transmission oil, which is showing at zero. We have the exhaust temperature, which is showing at zero. And we have the gas producer tachometer, which is at zero. So wow. there you go. Those are the the gauges I was able to suss out through a, through a combination of the Huey manual as well as you know all those pictures I found. So ah, wow, that's amazing. That's uh, that, that's what we found. That's some good stuff. <laughs> a good lot looking. of a lot of uh, looking for I don't know for that. There you go. There's what we know about their their flight instruments. All right. Wow. And are are those things supposed to be reading zero while you're in the air? Oh, I doubt it. I <laughs> I was uh the I was I had that same question. I was like, huh, I wonder I wonder how those are supposed to read. The best I could do was reading the descriptions in the UH one manual that I found, and for the most part it looked like those should not be reading zero. And also <laughs> it, you can find some videos on YouTube of people flying the helicopters and then occasionally they look down at the instrument panel enough that you can make out some of the values. So mm. I'm gonna say no, none of those should be at zero. But you know, people are like toggling and flipping and the screen's kind of shaking, and I just I just thought it'd be funny if all those things read zero, and well they do. So Wow, thanks so much for the diligent research. That's awesome. There you go. <laughs> I did not do my Huey research like you and Aaron have been doing. So 
Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, Aaron knows um, a bit more, I guess, because he's actually, you know, been in them. And me, he was just Googling, but there you go. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. After the spit talk, uh, we see Dutch listening to something on his headset. He says, yeah, okay, real quick. He doesn't say copy. He doesn't say Roger, which must be bugging Aaron <laughs> watching this minute somewhere. Um, because he brought that up in a previous minute. Like you would never just say something like that without any kind of just like the signals you're talking about. You would never like just say your thing and not give some kind of copy response or um, end of message sign off. Um, so he says that he takes off the headphones. The beeping tone starts in the chopper with this dude, 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 very monotone beep you see flashing lights starting to replace the interior interior red lighting dutch gives some hand signals uh, as i can only describe in writing as wave an upward pointing index finger clockwise grab the finger and secure it with the other hand in an upside down fist and he kind of like i don't know shakes the fist a little bit with the finger pointing upward it's like a funny a hand signal hand. it's a funny hand signal I would really like to work that into my teaching sometime for like, okay, it's time to stack chairs. I don't have to say it. I just go, hmm, and then everybody starts stacking the chairs and putting away laptops all quietly though and hooking their carabiners into their rails up in the ceiling. And then uh, there's okay, some good not... ones coming up too. If you could work in where he does the sharp whistle and then some wavy hands. Mm-hmm. Oh but yeah. There's yeah. You can, you have a lot to work in there. You have a lot to work with. Yeah. A lot of, I'm, doing some hand signals right now i don't know if you can see it this is more for the viewing audience there you go all right <laughs> uh, but as soon as he does that the crew just jumps into action uh they're hooking yeah so they're hooking up for the ceiling railing obviously they're preferring for something big the chopper door opens you're having the blue screen background through the chopper door um where you can see the jungle footage most likely recorded uh, from one of the choppers during this uh, flyover scene over the jungle. And I believe, didn't John McTiernan say something about the blue screen? He just acknowledged it was all I heard. He, I okay. just heard him say, and then the blue screen footage. So in okay. case you were still questioning whether they were filming this in flight <laughs> or not, I think is all he was getting at. Yeah, it's pretty obvious from just like the lighting that takes place when the door swings open that... Uh, this is some blue screen. The lighting that pours into the chopper is very directed and very artificial looking. And the blue screen is pretty obvious. In a previous minute, Aaron brought up, I believe, uh, John McTiernan's previous commentary talk where John McTiernan was talking about the choice to shoot these scenes with the doors closed. So in a previous iteration of the script, perhaps, and I don't have that iteration um, where it says that anywhere in the script that I have. Um, but I believe the doors were supposed to be open the whole time and that they're having this banter. And in my opinion, that would totally have taken away from this because having that blue screen in the background adds almost this kind of fantasy element, in my opinion, when you look back on these yeah, movies. and kind of a like Technicolor this, look. Yeah, and you're thinking like, oh, like it's, t it's taking me out of it a little bit versus something like this. It's all interior. It's all going back to that motif that Aaron and I talked about, I believe minute one or two of the podcast where we talked about this, the director and the set design creating this feeling of claustrophobia. Um, it especially kicks up when they turn on the beeping tone and the yellow light flashing Blaine turns off the music. So you just have the sound and you're like, people are kind of like moving around this small space chopper, hooking up to things. You start to lose like the, choreography and the geography of where everybody is on the chopper <clears throat> um, even with the door open 
and Dylan looking out of it, I, I have this strong feeling like, ah, they need to organize their stuff and they need to like start drop themselves off here in the jungle because it is like, I'm really starting to feel the cramped space. And that's something that continues throughout the movie. Um, I, th- I think it works well also because once the doors open and they look out, like all the music has stopped at this point. And this is where it starts to get kind of spooky. And this is where the gravity of the whole situation sets in. And so mm-hmm. I, I like, that's another reason I think that the doors being closed is really good is because you get to focus on the guys and their banter and their pre-mission work and they're all having a good time. And then all the smiles go away once the doors open and they actually, you know, the mission becomes real. So I think it would be lamer if the jungle was out there the entire time because it's not mm-hmm. as much of a shift as it is when the doors open up and then, you know, they're go you know, straight out to look out the door. Um, I, I just, I think the the contrast there is a lot better than it would have been. Oh, totally. Yeah. Just, just like you're saying, just focusing on, on this repartee, this, the, the jokey tone. And then like you're saying, like everything changes gear once they hop into action. A lot of credit I'm giving for this minute goes to the sound design, namely Richard L. Anderson, who's part of the motion picture sound editors, MPSE, you would usually see after like a main sound editor's name and credits. Uh, we have not talked about the sound editing yet for this movie, but just to talk about in this minute particular, it, it does highlight the tone change very effectively. We're not joking around anymore. We're going all business. Uh, the color changes, um, the 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 beeping tone, um, which he employs here. It's very, very foreshadowing, in my opinion, of much later in the movie when the Predator has started his wrist nuclear bomb countdown of that how that changes speed and pitch later in the movie but here in the beginning of the movie that tone is very steady monotone it doesn't change pitch it doesn't change speed um so i think there's a little bit of force or i think it's a lot of foreshadowing in my own opinion but um just to give a little bit of credit to richard l anderson he's been working on movies for the last 50 years in the sound design department uh, he worked on Star Wars. That's right, 1977 Star Wars with with um, the godfather of sound effects, Ben Burtt. He worked on Star Trek, the motion picture, The Hand, Raiders of the Lost Ark, for which he won a <coughs> special achievement Oscar with Ben Burtt. 48 Hours, Poltergeist, Goonies, 2010, Color Purple, The Color Purple, Beetlejuice, Harry and the Hendersons, Cocktail, Tremors, Edward Scissorhands, Lion King, Apollo 13, Sleepy Hollow, wow. Anchorman, Madagascar, and 22 Jump Street, just to name a few yes. uh, of his IMDb credits. So someone who knows what he's doing, um, and he has a really good interview you can check out sometime about his career on IndieFan.com. Oh, I mean, the the beep is perfect, because this is the moment where uh, everybody starts getting a sense of dread. And this is where, like, even watching it, like, my, my stomach sinks a little bit when the beeping starts and then they look out over the helicopter. It's dark. It's kind of cold looking, even though they're in the jungle. I get, uh, for some reason, this just looks really cold. Um, mm-hmm. But the beep, okay, I'm a big fan of the beep because it's just long enough and it's just monotone and it's at this weird pitch where to, I couldn't tell if it was being distorted or not when I was listening to it, even though it's just a steady beep. Like, I my ears would kind of trick me a little bit listening to it and, and wondering if it had been played with or if it was intentionally distorted because that it, it sounded spooky to me. So I, I liked that a lot. 
mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to if it was just a lighter like beep beep like okay time to go guys whereas this was a much a much scarier beep that i thought fit the the whole mood change here really well yeah that i like the point you're bringing up about like oh it's like making you kind of anxious for the crew too and um a note i have in my notes is um, i'm sure this has to be like an adrenaline adrenalized moment for at least some of the crew members even though you know they've probably done it many many times you know repelling out of a (laughs) out of a hovering chopper and i was wondering to my co-host what's something job related or just anything related that you've done a lot of times over that still adrenalizes you and I'll, I'll go first in that in teaching it's usually like the first day of school or a curriculum night like even though I've done this so many times like just seeing all the different faces always is like a rush at least the first time you do it and then you settle into your routine you muscle memory kicks in of like, oh, I've done this many times. This is my arena. This is my room. This is my content. I'm the expert here. So um, I was wondering, do you have anything like that? Yeah. So I work for a software company. I do quality assurance testing. And Mm -hmm. so it's my job to know the product really well and know how to troubleshoot stuff. And usually I'm just sitting there with my headphones on doing my own thing. But occasionally I'll have to do some kind of live demo or some kind of live something where I'm actively showing something the product or maybe I'm helping a customer troubleshoot or something in real time. And that real time element really like gets me spooked where because normally I just get to sit there in my zone. But it's like the just having somebody's eyes, somebody else's eyes watching and, you know, needing to solve something quickly. That's the one that really gets me going. And just a quick anecdote about that. Uh, I remember this was a while ago. My coworker was just was doing one of these things where he had to, you know, put on some demo. He had to troubleshoot something. Something wasn't quite working. And I was kind of watching over his shoulder as he was doing it. And he was on the phone and he paused the phone and he's just like, okay, Zach, like, what am I doing? Like, is there, is there anything else? And like, just, just cause he like, he kind of knew he's like, okay, I'm blanking. Just like, just take over for a minute. Like he kind of, he had to like tap out for a second. Cause he was kind of, he was, he was feeling the pressure, even though like he wasn't at the hard stuff yet. He was still just kind of in the setup phase, but he, he just kind of like took his hands off the keyboard. was like, okay, Zach, you take over for a minute. Like I, like I really need to think about this. And it was just one of those where it's like, it's not, it doesn't need to be hard. It's something we've all done, but it's just like any, anytime you uh, get in front of the customer or anytime you know the product really needs to work that's when the that's when the adrenaline kicks in and, and you're like oh crap this is game time oh that's awesome yeah that's awesome just had nothing like a live demo in front of yeah and he just, he just like had to he just had to step away for a second and just be like all right zach just you know like take over for 30 seconds i'll be back so <laughs> like don't worry don't worry this is just like we practiced just like we practiced yeah exactly it's no different just right. the just the mental aspect okay so a couple of, i have a couple of things um, yeah. So I know you like your color themes of the the red and the green and the yellows in there too, right? Is that one of your color themes? I do. Well, not the yellow, but the red. Well, and it's green. about I to be. I hadn't thought about yellow. So the I thought yellow was in there for some reason, but okay. Point is, there's a yellow light that comes on um, in between the red and the green lights. Yeah, it sounds kind of obvious when you say it, but um, so you know what else is yellow in this movie? is the predator's eyes so there you go there's if, if we're trying to you know draw some color themes that's the one other yellow thing that i noticed all right was, no, I, was, I love that. yep was his eyes not his real eyes but when he has the mask on um, right. that that's where his eyes are yellow all right. so, well nice catch all right there oh, it is green maybe by the end of the movie we'll have like the whole rainbow yeah, there's a little bit of purple on the bottom of his shoe in this one scene. It's like it's a very it's... symbolic movie, you know. <laughs> it's very symbolic. You need you need those colors. I agree. Um, I think the last note I have 
Oh, did you see you have a couple notes or is that? Uh, oh, I, I got stuff. I could talk. Okay, I have well, some, I'll, some... I'll, I'll share. My, how about I share my last little bit and then you can run with um, your last oh, uh, I'll or run. your, your I'll, notes. I'll run, run bro. Run, run, run. Re- don't run. Don't go run to rerun to rerun. Okay, anyway, I just, I've been talking about the original script and any differences there uh, between <clears> what we're seeing on the screen versus what was written and again one of my caveats for the script is they're likely making additions to the script and changes to the script as the movie's being filmed so you have some of the quote-unquote like ad-libbed lines like showing up in the script and to me that's just telling me that this is all a work in production like they're making changes on the fly at times and there's a lot of downtimes between like waiting for the newest version of the costume so likely they're adding some things and taking away some things. And in the end, I think John McTiernan did a great job of just taking away things that showed up in the script that were not necessary to um, propelling the story forward. Um, and a couple of things that we, one thing that we hear is the pilot talk, the pilot chatter and Dutch's headset saying LZ coming up in 30 seconds, stand by the repel lines. You don't need that. And I'm glad it's not in there. Dutch gives you the signal that this is what's about to happen. The rappel lines, like, line it up, rope it up, belay on. You do hear some chatter, um, just kind of some helicopter chatter a little bit, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of faint. I couldn't actually make out what they're saying, and it was over the other character dialogues, so they weren't using it, like, to inform you or anything. To me, they were just using it as kind of that extra little layer of immersion where you're like, oh, they're in a helicopter, and you hear the comm chatter. But it was, again, it was as other dialogue was going on, and I, I couldn't even make out what they were saying. I think I heard LZ, and that was all I could make out. The landing zone. Um, the only other thing I saw added in this scene for this minute in the script was uh, Blaine is sitting there patting the bag holding his minigun affectionately. Old paintless, but you don't see that in this minute, and you don't see that until they're in the jungle walking around. Um, so, again, it's good that they kept that out, too, because we don't need to see you know, the, the real hero of the movie quite, quite yet. We will wait till we see that pop out of the bag later, but go ahead. If you have some other things to. Yeah. Some with, other observations. So, uh, I saw in your notes about, you were saying 1972, what was going on then? Um, or I don't know, you, you had something about that where like, I'll find it here. Well, yeah, he says battle, he said North of way 72, but the battle of way that um, you'll come across as oh, yeah. one of the big battles was was in the 60s, not 1972. So I took a different approach. I Googled Vietnam 1972. Sure. And what I found was there was something called the Easter Offensive, which is uh-huh. when the North Vietnamese made a real strong kind of conventional military push to kind of recover ground in South Vietnam. That was right around Way and just north of there as well. So, because that's, they were kind of coming in, basically, Way was kind of along the border there. Um, and, and that's where they were coming from. So, it, that kind of fits the bill. If we're trying to put them in a real world event, then the Easter Offensive is the, is the one to look into for that. Um, cause that's, that was a, the start of a really big military push from the North Vietnamese. And, okay. and it, it fits the time frame and it fits the location. Awesome. Well, that's another little detail. They're just informing, not us, I don't think, as much as they're informing just each other. Or if he said battle, or if he said North Away 1972, you know, the the crew would, un- would know what that means, you know, and, and 
he's trying to push that forward almost like a not even like he's pushing that forward as a reference if that's the case then where people are going to say oh yeah i know that reference oh yeah i know that reference kind of like when you quote a movie or something but he's like kind of quoting a location in the year of a battle without saying the name of the battle nice that's some that's some good it's good catch there good research there yeah if it fits the bill and then okay and then there is uh hawkins is reading something and i was surprised that nobody mentioned the possibility of him reading sergeant rock do you know what I I'm, believe I yeah I, I believe I might have mentioned that he might be reading a comic book, but I didn't name it as Sergeant Rock because I think Aaron was of the opinion that it was more likely like a magazine, and so I just took it to be either a magazine or just something we're not meant to know. But you want to talk about Sergeant Rock? So I just it, it was another one of these kind of helicopter gauge moments, kind of one of these instrument panel moments for me, where I you know you see Hawkins reading Sergeant Rock in the end credits. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, maybe he's reading that. And so I took the best shot we have, which is of the back of the magazine. Or, you know, it's kind of the, the side that we get, not the side that he's reading, but the other side. Um, but mm-hmm. it's a magazine, so it just has it folded over. And I found the uh, the volume or the issue of Sergeant Rock that's in the end credits. And I found it online and I went through the pages. And I'm just here to confirm that that is not it. <laughs> I was uh, I, I went through all the pages because you get a pretty good look at the back of of one of these pages and uh, and none of them match so it's either a different magazine or something but the point is it's I can I can say with certainty it is not that issue that he's holding in the end credits just because I'm sure somebody was thinking it I know I was thinking it when I saw the movie all the way through and it's yeah, it's not all right so there you go another another little uh, <laughs> another little myth busted here and then. Yeah. Okay, and then one other just kind of uh, miscellany observation I had was, so you have Mac here. He's the quiet one in this chopper ride. Billy's pretty quiet too, although he arguably possibly laughs when Poncho makes his comment uh, in rebuttal to to Blaine, where Mm -hmm. he says, like, what does he say? Stick this up your sore ass or something, which makes no sense, but you guys talked about that. So yeah. so there, there's the really guttural laugh, which is maybe Billy. So I'm, so in my in my head canon, Mac is the only one who doesn't really talk or make any noise here. But he's like chewing on something, I guess, and I don't know what he's chewing on, but you can see him really plainly, like moving his jaw up and down. And this is right after he said no to the chew, which I know you don't actually chew, but Blaine does. I don't know, just just something here. You just see him kind of moving his jaw. I don't know if he's doing that on purpose. I don't know if he's supposed to be eating something or chewing something. Or maybe he's just doing it because he's seeing Jesse do it and he's just kind of going for it. I, I don't know. But that was just something I noticed where he's like, he's really uh, masticating there in the background. Huh. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's more commonplace than we're giving it credit for chewing in the military and just a way to kill time. But he's just not making a big deal of it because he's Billy. <laughs> Billy being Billy. Oh, did we already talk uh, the director commentary talk? Uh, did we? Ha- was there any? Um, we kind of yeah. listened to it all i heard so the director commentary at least on this fine 15 year anniversary dvd um <laughs> the director commentary is it sounded like he was on horse tranquilizers the whole time or something or or like he sounded he was so subdued yeah um i only listened to just this minute of commentary but man was he subdued he was really kind of like drawling and really quiet Mm -hmm. and i didn't get much out of it since his words per minute was in the realm of like you know 12 or something Uh, but all i got out of it was that that is indeed a blue screen that that's about all i heard from that minute it was it was actually kind of hard to hear i was trying to listen over speakers and i 
could barely make out what he was saying. So yeah, it kind of sounded like he was just rambling on about like the percentage that he was going to be making off the movie, and like when his um, agent was negotiating uh, with the studio. Um. So, it, but yeah, it was it was just really rambly, really low volume, and honestly, kind of low effort on McTiernan's part. Oh, really, very low effort. Really wish he he really, said more about this. I've, yeah. I've heard other things, and he 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 gives some good commentary on like Die Hard and other movies. But I think something about Predator is is he kind of sees it as like a silly movie from other things and in interviews I've read it as. He he sees it as like a much simpler movie, which. It's a super bummer because I really enjoy the movie and I, I see a lot of deeper things in other movies I've seen. It's got to be his best movie, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's my favorite movie. A lot of people credit Die Hard as his best or some would say Hunt for Red October. I see. Yeah. Uh, to me, this one can't be beat. Yeah, he really rollerballed that commentary. Not... He really did. He's probably recording that. Yeah, as he's like doing the wiretapping for his producers. Yeah, I want to hear his rollerball commentary Mom. now. He's probably like really amped about it. <laughs> Zach, where can people find you online to learn more about your? Uh, they're not going to find me easily. The IT. only, the only like semblance of an online presence I have is maybe my Twitch page. Maybe I stream like once a year. But if someone feels really compelled, it's uh, the Twitch handle is a p p a r one t i o n. I'm a fan of speedruns, so if you see me streaming, I'm either going to be doing a speedrun or if you just go there, look at who I follow if you want to follow good people. I guess that would be the only reason you should visit my page is to see who I follow and just follow them. Okay, cool, man. Well, thanks again for uh, co-hosting. Uh, I'll talk about where you can find us, Predator Minute. You can find us on Facebook at Predator Minute Podcast, on Twitter at Predator Minute. If you want to email us uh, about a time you spit on someone's shoe or you did a crazy hand signal, then everybody knew it was time to leave the chopper at that moment uh email us at predator minute at gmail.com we're also on itunes stitcher google play music soundcloud a lot of other podcatcher services tend to take um the feeds from those big three itunes stitcher google play music so until next time i've been john and i've been zach oh i totally did that backwards sorry for predator minute I've been John. And I'm Zach. And until next time. That's a real nasty habit you got there. Dun 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 dun